Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. In this week's edition of Insight, we have a full intro full of bad animal puns, all because your MC is pony. Yes, I'm recovering from a cold and I'm a little horse. The insurance industry is under the spotlight about the responses to last year's floods. The parliamentary inquiry will be asking questions, but not, how is it possible to see animals on the ark at night? They already know the answer, it's because of floodlights. Those sick birds, ASIC, are cracking down on design and distribution obligation breaches. Yes, they're illegal, but two can play at that game. And insurers can't pay claims for things that are just worn out or neglected. Much like this intro, this is a tendency to drag on. Oh, that one's so bad, alpaca my bags. Hello, everyone. This week, it's a special, intimate edition of Insight, featuring senior journalists Miranda Maxwell and Bernice Hand, plus editor John Deeks. Good morning, Miranda. How are you, Andrew? Coughing away. Trying to hide the coughing. So what's your favourite animal? Oh, it's got to be my spoodle. I know that's, you know, predictable, but it's the truth. Hello, Bernice. Hi, Andrew. And what about you, Bernice? What's your favourite animal? Duck. <laughs> a duck? Duck. <laughs> oh, a dog. Sorry, not a duck. I'm afraid of ducks and chickens. All right. And hello, John. Hello. So, John... What have you done with everybody else? Oh, well, Wendy's doing some hiking holiday in the UK and uh, Terry's very busy doing the insurance news type things. This isn't uh, insurance news type things? More important things. Our listeners will be devastated. Well, anyway, let's crack on. The insurance industry will be under the spotlight again, John, with a parliamentary inquiry announced into the response to last year's floods. Yes, that's right. We know that flooding last year was was pretty extreme we had that catastrophe in february march with 240,000 claims and counting that was across new south wales and queensland but we also had a number of other events throughout the year pushing the claims tally up to to more than 300,000 it was a lot of pressure for um insurers and their processes and systems now the insurance council of australia had already announced its own review of the response to the floods. And I think that perhaps they hoped that would be enough. But unfortunately, the government has decided that we need a parliamentary inquiry into the response. We don't really know how it's going to work yet. There's no terms of reference or anything like that. But I guess we'll be finding out soon. When the inquiry was launched last week, it was launched in the New South Wales community of Ugara, which was badly hit by floods in November last year. And the local MP came out all guns blazing. He he had a had a go at the insurance industry, mean-spirited, callous, cold-hearted, pretty much all those kind of phrases were rolled out. I suspect he doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand exactly how policies work, but he's fighting for his constituents. So yes, I'm afraid we, we're going into another parliamentary inquiry. We may well see insurance CEOs hauled before committee hearings and, and the like, and we just don't really know where it's going to end up. There's a little bit of concern that it could turn into a bit of a witch hunt. There's also a concern that it might come up with some recommendations that the industry doesn't like. So when it gets into the issue of flood insurance and how affordability is such an issue in some areas, it might come up with some intervention, which is a bit of a an ugly word from the insurance industry's perspective. Parliamentary inquiry. I've just been watching Utopia again. So how do you see this one playing out, Bernice? Do you think it'll get messy? 
Yeah, so if history is any guide, it looks like this will be one messy, muddy circus for the uh, industry. And it sure feels like 2019 all over again after the Townsville floods. Politicians went after insurers, slashing the industry after horror stories of residents not getting their claims accepted. And most of these residents weren't insured for floods. And the reason? It was simply too expensive and it reflects the risk. So many opt out. So it's almost a routine. It's almost routine now for politicians to basically go after insurers every time a major catastrophe strikes. So it's an easy way to score political points with their base. But the real issues, unfortunately, are not being addressed. Uh, issues like uh, insurance taxes, which adds to the cost of uh, premiums, land use, etc. But the comments from our financial services minister, Stephen Jones, rather encouraging. I mean, he did say repeatedly last week that we have to look at the underlying risks, like not putting more houses and more communities in peril, or we'll be hearing the same story again. So uh, we'll see. Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> wow, Benice, Terry will listen to that and learn a few things himself there. Now, while we're talking about flood risk, Benice, the UK reinsurance pool has concerns about the future. Yeah, so the chair of Flood Re, the reinsurance scheme, he's saying that the risk of floods and other extreme weather events is only going to get worse, not better. And we know the reason, climate change. So, and it's not just the uh, small communities by the river or coast that are at risk. So basically, even the ones living in the urban areas are facing the same threat too. So basically, he's saying that more than 3 million homes in urban areas are, are basically will, will be facing the flood risk as well. So uh, like Australia, the UK needs to step up its uh, climate adaptation efforts. And flood risk is hoping to start the ball rolling before it exits the market in 2039 as uh, mandated by law. So while the scheme has succeeded in providing access to affordable flood insurance, it's only a medium-term solution. So the ultimate aim come 2039 is for insurers to price flood risk according to market signals. Yep. Flood risk seems to work, John. Can we mirror that here? Yeah, well, as you know, I guess most of the industry still remains against a flood reinsurance pool. Part of the reason for that is they worry that it'll encourage people to build houses in on floodplains and, and, and it'll just encourage an acceptance of high risk. But there are lots of good things about flood re, I think, in the UK. It, it, it does limit the cost of flood insurance. There's a barrier that the cost cannot go beyond. And, and that means that in the UK, then you won't have people facing, you know, $30,000 flood insurance bills like we, we have here in the worst affected areas. It does this by effectively everyone pays a bit more so that the people who are at high risk don't get those huge bills. It's not losing money, from what I can tell. Opponents of uh, flood pools often point to the US, and the situation there is a bit of a mess, but I, I don't believe that flood re is losing money. Uh, it has a build back better element to the scheme so that uh, it encourages insurers to build back in a more resilient way when these uh, flood risk properties are damaged. And it doesn't apply to new builds, so it's not encouraging development in, in floodplains. But I guess one of the problems would be with premiums rising sharply here across the board, would, would all policyholders be happy to pay even higher premiums to subsidise someone else's flood risk? And really, I think Australia and the UK are pretty pretty different countries, aren't they? I know that the UK does have a high flood risk in certain areas, but it presumably works pretty differently here. Some of the ap apocalyptic floods that we've seen in Australia over, over recent years. Plus, it wouldn't solve the problem of cricket games getting washed out, would it, John? <laughs> 
yeah, this is a bit of a sore point. Let, let's not get into that. <laughs> so it seems that insurers are relying on wear and tear exclusions more than they should to decline claims, Miranda. Yes, the code governance committee stumbled on this by accident. It was actually looking at how insurers make use of complaints data, but it ended up uncovering what it says is a concerning trend it cannot ignore in the number of claims denied because of maintenance or wear and tear exclusions. It looked at about 40,000 home claims that were denied and found 55% of them were on the basis of these exclusions. And also that when 10,000 of those policyholders complained, half were in fact overturned in favour of the consumer. The second top reason for claim denial was only 14% of claims. So it is suspicious that there's such an over-reliance on one exclusion and that's what the committee is worried about. It was not impressed with these statistics and used some really strong language saying it was alarmed and that insurers really must get on top of this. Insurers can't play claims for things that are just worn out or neglected, though, can they, John? No, they can't. And that's why that uh, exclusion is in pretty much every insurance policy that, you know, wear and tear and lack of maintenance and and gradual deterioration, those sorts of things generally aren't covered. And yeah, you understand that if you've got a gaping hole in your roof, then you're not going to get paid if if your contents get, get rained on and that kind of thing. I think um, it comes down to a little bit of common sense here as to how that exclusion is applied. Example I've just given, obviously you'd side with the insurer, but what if a, a huge storm comes through and rips off roofs and the like and then and the insurer is saying oh well your roof wasn't quite properly secured every other house in the street is demolished as well you'd feel pretty pretty hard done by i think and we see a lot of these complaints go to afca and usually what afca tries to tries to establish is what is the proximate cause so what ultimately what was the leading uh, cause of the damage there may be an element of wear and tear in there but it might be the storm that was the prox- proximate c- cause nonetheless so it's really it's really quite tricky for africa with a lot of these complaints they have to consult expert reports and, and just come to a decision over what ultimately was the cause of the damage so i think what we're seeing here is just insurers sometimes just being a little bit too eager to use that wear and tear exclusion and they've got a little bit of a telling off here for doing that so the ICA says that they're looking into it and we'll see where it goes from now well ASIC seems to be cracking down on any breaches of design and distribution obligations Benice you could probably start off by explaining that sentence for me but give us a recap of what's been going on yeah, so ASIC has uh, basically made it very clear to the insurers, we will be taking a tougher approach. Basically, it's surveillance of the industri- uh, industry's compliance with design distribution obligations. So basically, the law started in 2021, October. So ASIC reviewed more than 100 target market determinations or TMDs of products, including pet and travel insurance and um the regulator is not very pleased with what it has found. While there were some good practices, ASIC is concerned with the flaws of the other TMDs in question. So some of them uh, did not include an explanation of why the product is likely to be consistent with the financial situation and needs of targeted customers. And this is very important for ASIC basically because it says the product has to provide good value for 
consumers. So the message from ASIC is get ready for more stock orders. Basically, these are sales ban on a particular product until the TMDs in question have been fixed. And ASIC has already done that um, to pack insurance products from Hollard. I think that was more than 35 or 37 stock orders. Yeah, so the industry has been put on notice. So they might be now reviewing their TMDs to make sure they don't get caught up by the uh, ASIC surveillance net. 35 stop orders. Considering the price of premiums going up and the idea of value, is that a bit heavy-handed, John? Well, it's a bit drastic, isn't it? Not seen that kind of action from ASIC too often, have we? But I suppose what they would say is we've tried the friendly approach. We've 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 had lots of consultations uh, since this l- new law came in, and they've probably run out of patience a little bit. They're still finding problems. It's been a while now since it came in, so insurers really should have their house in order. You mentioned the cost of premiums. It, it does have an impact because all these new compliance matters cost a lot to to keep up with. You know, insurers need large teams and a lot of focus on compliance these days. And that, that comes with a cost. But yeah, ASIC, to be fair, has been pretty clear for a while now that it, it's taking this stuff very seriously. So insurers really have no option but to make sure that all their uh, DDO, design and distribution obligations, target market determinations, all that stuff, they've got it all in, in, in good order. Well, finally, Miranda, the ACCC's decision on ANZ's acquisition of Suncorp Bank has been delayed again. Why are we talking about banks? I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when ANZ received this letter from the ACCC. So it's Merger Investigations General Manager Daniel McCracken Hewson wrote requesting that the deadline for the $4. billion deal, which had been the end of this week, be extended to August 11. ANZ ended up meeting the regulator halfway and granted one week, not two. So now the deadline is August the 4th. The letter says it told ANZ to lodge its submission by mid-July and that it be no longer than 50 pages. But, and I quote, ANZ chose not to provide a response on June 30. ANZ provided its submission after 11 p.m. on Monday, 18th of July, days after the date requested and provided material well in excess of 50 pages. So basically the ACCC is saying it just didn't have time to get through all that. I'm not exactly sure how much we can read into what the final decision might be from the tone of that letter, but I think it's safe to say ACCC and ANZ are not best buddies. Well, how important is this for Suncorp, John? Yeah, pretty important. I mean, I don't think it will be catastrophic if it doesn't go through, but they've got their heart set on it, I think. This idea that Suncorp should be a pure play insurance company, you know, the focus will be purely on the insurance side of the business and that will help. That's a big part of their argument for the fact that this deal should go through. You know, IAG is is its main competitor and, and that doesn't have a bank to distract it. So yeah, I, I think they really want this to go through. They've they've put a lot of effort into all their submissions to convince the ACCC that it's the right thing. We just have to keep waiting for the ACCC's decision as we've got, as Miranda says, yet another delay. But yeah, Suncorp will certainly be keeping its uh, fingers crossed that it gets the tick. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Inside Podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, Miranda Maxwell, Bernice Han, and John Deeks. Proof 
but Wendy and Terry are just passengers in this stratospheric journey. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Inside Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, on all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.